Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. Rhode Island is a small state, but one which is so reflective of so much of the country. It has a governor's race this year, and Dr. Luis Daniel Munoz is running for the office. He joins us today to discuss his campaign. At this point in time, for a state that I love, I realized that families were not being looked after. The only response to uh, these attempted de- attacks on democracy is more democracy. That means more people showing up, more people with access to the ballot. In politics, we've seen the mudslinging and the millions of dollars it can take to win. People are fed up with a system that hasn't worked for them. People 50 to 64 years of age who are Black and Latino, are three times more likely to die of COVID-19. Hi, I'm Luis Daniel Munoz. I'm a medical doctor, also an organizer here in the state of Rhode Island. I grew up in Central Falls, and as a Central Falls kid, as I say, it's very much in my heart to fight for economic justice, to fight for a free healthcare system, to address environmental justice issues, and most importantly, to fight the bullies, the bullies that have designed systems of oppression that are marginalizing communities every day here in the state of Rhode Island. I believe that it's time to fight against cronies. I believe that it's time to dismantle uh, policies that continue to oppress communities like our indigenous community, the Narragansett Tribe, policies such as the 1978 Settlement Compact. In Rhode Island, we have a long history of corruption. We have a long history of indifference. And oftentimes, I think about why that's the case, and it I always come to the same conclusion, that people that find themselves in these positions and that pay their way into these positions are too disconnected from the struggle of everyday Rhode Islanders. I come from that struggle. I still live it every day, and I know why I'm in this fight, and that's what I'm fighting for. Sorry, not sorry. Luis, tell us about the political landscape in Rhode Island. Well, the history of Rhode Island, I think it's evident in a lot of news articles and Google searches, but it's very, there's a history of corruption here. And we, you know, figures like CNC are probably the most uh, pronounced in terms of what people have heard about Rhode Island, the Prince of Providence, as they say. And while it's become a joke, it's unfortunate that that joke has disconnected people from the consequences of that corruption. We have a Democratic Party that covers uh, the, the spectrum of very liberal to very conservative. So rather than having an issue with the two-party system, we have an issue within our one-party system where some Democrats paint the vision of progress for many Rhode Islanders, but continue to favor large corporation subsidies, continue to operate 
within the realm of nepotism. And as a result, pretty much who you know in Rhode Island. And one example of that, I would say, is how we see massive amounts of development taking place. And very few of those developments are for affordable and low-income housing. We see fossil fuel companies consistently threatening to expand in a time where right in the port of Providence, we have one of the highest child asthma rates in the nation, ranked ninth. So environmental justice issues go by the wayside as large companies are paying politicians to favor fossil fuel expansion. We have hospital costs that are skyrocketing in a time, even now when we're in a pandemic, our community health infrastructure, like many states, is completely dismantled. And yet, even in that time, we have Brown University and large hospital systems wanting to merge to favor research over health equity. This is the state of Rhode Island. This is the political environment and the material conditions that we're having to exist in. And no one's fighting back. And I'm running for governor because I think it's time to take this office, take this seat and this platform and to empower Rhode Islanders with an understanding of what's going on and with as much of the resources that I can provide them to get into this fight and to push back. I want to get your opinion on something. Obviously, things went poorly for Democrats in Virginia, especially in the governor's race. What do you think happened there? I think people are calling for grassroots Democrats. People are calling for working and marginalized in this country, the working and the marginalized, for people from those communities to rise up to the ranks because we need political courage at this time. And again, this is not having known any of the candidates personally, but it's pretty clear that within the National Democratic Party and even in the state Democratic committees, there tends to be a level of grooming that takes place. Pay your way, climb the ranks, show us that you're part of the woodwork. And the problem with that is that there's a path of compromise and a path of small and small concessions that ultimately result in very little good being done. And I think that has an impact on the psychology of our communities. So when we look at voter turnout and how it's been waning over the years, I think it is a consequence of the Democratic Party as a whole not recognizing that it's time to lift up those that may have been previously labeled as more radical, but those that will have the courage to actually affect some level of programmatic change. What a breath of fresh air you are. How can how do you think Rhode Island can avoid having the same fate as Virginia? I mean, it's time to activate, right? It's time to activate people. And I think that people are ready. I just don't know if they feel empowered with the instruments necessary to affect programmatic change. So for instance, Rhode Island as an example, there's a narrative that's been built out over the years where the House of Representatives controls the purse. And we don't have a line item veto. And so this narrative has in many ways justified the placing of governor after governor who, again, does not come from marginalized and working communities because they say, well, they're just figureheads. They can provide a vision and set a budget and they do manage administration. But at the end of the day, the House of Representatives, it passes the budget. And yet I think that's a cop I think we, we see that without the line item veto, the governor can still veto an entire budget. The governor can still stand up publicly and say that health is a human right, that housing is a human right, that we can solve homelessness while we're in the midst of getting $1.1 billion from the federal government. I mean, why couldn't we solve homelessness? And so this quote unquote figurehead office in a state that has tried to diminish it now finds itself as one of the most powerful positions or offices in all states across the country during this pandemic. And what we saw the response that we saw in COVID-19 and just the lack of response or poor responses that we're seeing now with the eviction crisis. My message to the governor is simple. If you need something, say something. And we, uh, we're we going to have your back in any way we can. 
Last week, we took steps to bolster support for you with number one, more capacity to get shots in arms. With more places, more vaccinators, more times for folks to get vaccinated or get a booster shot. It is a consequence of having, I would say, displaced accountability from the offices of governor. And now is a time where I think people have woken up. They realize like governors actually have a role to play in our everyday lives. They can actually contribute to whether we're living on the street or have shelter over our heads, whether our children are going to get food, whether we're going to get the COVID test or COVID vaccine. And my hope between now and next September is that enough Rhode Islanders who felt that pain, who now understand the consequences, will wake up, stand up and walk with me. You mentioned COVID. You're a medical doctor. I guess the question is, how does that experience prepare you for politics, especially now in this day and age? Being a medical doctor for me wasn't only about learning about medicine. It was learning about the social determinants of health. What are the material conditions? How do those material conditions, how does education, how does environment, how does housing, how does our our financial status as a whole impact our mental health? How does it impact our physical health? And being in medicine and the small amount of clinical experience that I had before I jumped into industry was enlightening. And many of the reasons I I did jump into industry was because what I was seeing uh, wasn't good. You have for-profit healthcare systems that at the end of the day, as they, as I just said, favor profits over lives. And it's not the physician's fault. It's not the nurse's fault. It is just the way the systems were designed. And so if you're operating in those systems, it's very hard to change them from the inside. And as a physician, I noticed that I realized that change needed to happen. And I jumped into industry, assuming that if you could design systems like technologies, perhaps you could change in that way. You could incentivize more affordable, accessible healthcare through the use of things like telemedicine and other mobile technologies. But it was an assumption that proved to be false as well. Again, the industries are designed to be for profit. Pharmaceutical companies have revenue models that are designed to hike up drug prices when they know that they can take more from the average health consumer. So all of that, along with my personal experience, growing up as a kid poor in Central Falls, a single mother raising five children, a father that struggled with addiction, and going through those their respective journeys along with them, at least observing their struggle in each of their unique ways, teamed with my professional experience, really just activated me. And all it took was 2020 to in many ways, break me out of this prison in my own mind, this colonized mindset that somehow the arbitrary standards that we're all living under should be real, that they are unbreakable. In fact, as we can break them, we can dismantle these systems of oppression and we can create better systems. And that's what I'm fighting for. And as a physician, I am fighting even harder because I understand that there are consequences on people's mental health and on their physical health. And those consequences will not be good if we don't do something now. Now's the time to act. Why did you decide to run? Was there a moment? Yeah, you know, I did health policy development during med school, and I thought it was fascinating from an intellectual standpoint, but I wasn't in really, how should I say this? It would take you 20 years to pass a policy, right? You think about something, you write it down, you push it, you you get a lobbying group behind it. It was frustrating to see the pace. And I ran before, first time I ran was 2018. And I would say I had the, the fire but I didn't realize how, how afraid I was deep down inside. What I mean by that is when I ran for governor the, the first time in Rhode Island, I wanted to see things change and I wanted to fight corruption. And I had been threatened by some operatives here and I saw the corruption. And, and so I was incited to want to fight against it. But I failed to acknowledge even my lived experience. Like I failed to speak 
fully and, and honestly about the struggle that informed who I was as a human being. And, and I didn't realize that until 2019. Like it took a whole year of thinking back and realizing that there were so many moments when I actually should have had the courage to say, this is who I am. And this is why I'm willing to put my body on the line here. This is why I'm willing to push forward. And for not doing that, I think that I probably failed to activate enough people that time. I wasn't set on running again. I'll tell you now, I mean, running was hard mentally and on, on my family, of course. And it's hard to come back from a run, right? Because you want to continue to have faith in the electoral process, even though it is designed to create barriers to entry for especially people from working in marginalized backgrounds. Word association. Donald Trump. Am I allowed to curse? Reproductive rights. Legalism. DACA. Not good enough. Describe your campaign in five words. Love. Love is actually my mantra uh, throughout this entire campaign. How I would describe my day. My days are busy and my days are long. Hectic. Exhausting. But 2020 happened. And when I start hearing that people are getting turned away from clinics, that undocumented people in the state are getting turned away from free clinics for testing and that they're dying in their homes. And then the vaccine comes out. And the plan before the vaccine was even deployed was to disperse Johnson and Johnson mostly and not Moderna. You start to ask yourself questions like, why are these decisions being made? Like, why the sequence of events? Why do 18,000 teachers are, are able to get vaccines in two days, which I want them to get the vaccine, but marginalized communities had to wait an additional two months to have their first mass vaccination event, especially in highly dense communities where the transmission rate was up to 17% in Central Falls, where I grew up. Why were these things happening? And I started to fight back. And honestly, I, I've grown as an organizer since 2018. And I've grown because I've listened to other organizers who have been in the space doing mutual aid work. And we came together and we created a health equity petition and we got ourselves onto the previous governor's equity council. And it was on that equity council where I had to serve as what I call an intellectual antagonist for months. I had to bring my understanding of medicine and the advocacy and organizing I've done to the Department of Health's table and really push back as to why their operational plans were not designed to address equity gaps that existed long before COVID-19. And in that battle, in that weekly and biweekly battle, I started to lose sleep about December of, of 2020. And the sleep I was losing was we were about to deploy the vaccine plan and the administration just didn't want to move. And then with the administration was on its way out. Governor Raimundo was then on her way to become Secretary of Commerce. And Daniel McKee, the Lieutenant Governor, was on his way to transition to governor. And you could see it. We could still see it. We saw the housing crisis where it's going to get worse. Yeah. I mean, we, we always see it. We see it years ahead. We saw the threat of Kavanaugh and, and Roe v. Wade. We always see it. I think that's what the most frustrating part of activism and organizing is. You know, we see it so far in advance. 
And it just feels like we're screaming into the wind sometimes. And that's how it felt. And not just for me, but it felt like that for others who I was working alongside. Women of color's voices were left completely out of those spaces all of 2020. And it didn't end then. It's still happening now. And when the vaccine was deployed, at that point in my heart, I, I knew that I was going to run. But I will say there was a moment. There was a moment I was waiting. I was waiting for the governor that transitioned in to do the right thing. And like I said, when we're told that there is an analysis that's going to show or showing that if the economy opens, it's likely to have 142 lives that would have been lost. It was an estimated number that was made. And that those lives are highly dense communities of color. And even after that analysis, the governor does not take steps, even within the four weeks that followed, to have a mass vaccination site. They were trickling the vaccine into communities by the dozens and not by the hundreds. So we organized a mass vaccination week and myself and the community leaders and activists that I've been working alongside. We called on the governor. The governor didn't do it. The governor said, you do it. The governor had us design an operational plan for two Saturdays for mass vaccination weekend for communities that had significant vaccine equity gaps and over 100 community members, some representing organizations, some just taking their own time, came together. We ran charter bus routes. We had on-site registration clinics. We got over 5,000 people the opportunity because we asked them if they wanted it. We didn't force this on people. We had 5,000 people take the opportunity to register and to receive the vaccination all within the Black, Indigenous, Asian, and Latino communities. We closed the gap more in two days than the governor has done in the last nine months. And that is the power of people. That is the power of activism in an organized way, addressing issues of equity, of racial justice. So we can create change. Here in the state of Rhode Island, we can create a model here at the state level that even the federal government can follow. And in a state as small as Rhode Island, I think that whatever we show, it's going to be something that will be much more amplified in terms of its what you observe than a state like New York City or Texas, which we know are just really large and, and the political dynamics are, are very different. Here, you know, 39 municipalities all see and feel what's going on because we're so close. Rhode Island is such a small state, but it's really a microcosm of the rest of the nation. So what lessons can the rest of the nation learn from states like yours? I'll go through the kind of tiers of issues here and try to condense it as much as possible. We have education. We have one of the most inequitable education funding formulas to the point where it segregates communities. It segregates children. It concentrates poverty. And the way it does that is it relies on property taxes. And the property taxes vary between towns and cities. So how the more affluent communities or cities and towns versus the less affluent ones manage their property tax rates has a direct impact on the school districts. And so if you're a kid living in Cranston, but you're living on the poor side, but the west side of Cranston is wealthier, the poor side ends up getting less money. So their school districts suffer and those kids suffer. So we have a segregated um, education system, you know, one that promotes segregation based on economics. Malcolm X once said that education is the passport to the future. But what if some passports are better than others, giving the holder access to better schools and teachers, and in turn, a more prosperous future? These inequalities have been around long before COVID-19, but the pandemic has both exacerbated them and made them more visible. So how does Rhode Island show the rest of the world that we can change that? Start weighing factors that aren't just free school lunches. 
start considering the fact that most children who are experiencing poverty do need mental health resources because of what's going on at home. Because at the end of the day, stress is stress and stress on a family does translate into stress on children. Why not address more language learning services? Why not have more after school programs for children who may need additional supports and embed those costs into the education formula? Don't just treat poverty as a top-down approach. Equity is not just about taking money and filling gaps. It's also about laterally addressing all of these factors that compound on poverty and then addressing them from a cost structure, from resources and programs that we're paying for. So Rhode Island can do this. We can design an education funding formula that brings kids from North Kingstown, which is a relatively affluent town, together with kids from Providence, which right now has a huge gap in funding in terms of the infrastructure needs that it needs for its school district. And by bringing them together through after-school programs, by providing some level of equity in how we're funding them, frankly, I think we can start to see in four, eight years from now, the generations of these students crossing these city and town lines, which right now, when you think about it, Rhode Island is very much known for people kind of staying in their respective pockets. So that's on the education front. On environment, we can expand wind. We can have solar rooftops. We can improve our grid. We have one supplier of electricity. So it doesn't matter how much we expand wind. Right now, the bottleneck is that our infrastructure forces us to go through one supplier. We're a small state. If we increase, added another supplier, how would that change the dynamics of how we expand wind, transition away from fossil fuels, and frankly, demonstrate that we can reduce the asthma rates in the port area now, which are astronomically high. This isn't only about climate justice. This is about environmental justice and supporting marginalized communities. For healthcare, we can have a free healthcare system in Rhode Island. People talk about Medicare for all on the federal level. They talk about single payer at the state level, like Vermont tried to implement And what I find interesting is there are all these ideological points and people are trying to win on the basis of ideology. And yet I'm saying, why don't we actually win on the basis of creating free clinic infrastructure that people can walk to clinics, they can have mental health resources, addiction services, we can embed social programs in the comprehensive community health hubs, and we can create one hub in each of our five counties. The way to change healthcare is not just to pour money into it. The way to change healthcare is to make sure that as you're pouring money, the state, the government is establishing price thresholds where prices aren't astronomically high for pharmaceuticals, where the cost of going to an emergency room visit or a clinic visit for the flu is $170 per person, which is sustainable compared to an ER at Rhode Island Hospital where you would pay $1,200 to $2,000 if you went for the flu. We can have a free clinic, uh, free healthcare system in Rhode Island but I think it starts with a free community health system. So those are the three major areas. I can speak to other areas, but those are ways that we can show local change that can serve as a model for national change. And of course, all these ideas that you're talking about, which are brilliant and fair and just and right, and shouldn't be ideas that we have to fight for, but all of it has been labeled progressive. Everything you've mentioned has been labeled progressive ideas. And I am just so tired of the labels. I'm tired of labeling the idea that we need to take care of our people in this country as something that's radical or progressive. It just, it makes zero sense to me. It just can't, I can't, I can't do it anymore. It's just exhausting. But what you're talking about, 
let's just say, we'll call it progressive just for the sake of this interview so people understand maybe uh, a little bit more about the progressive ideology. My question is, why is it the time now for progressive ideas and actions instead of compromise and meeting in the middle? Yeah, I just want to frame level of progressivism that that I believe in, it's grassroots progressivism. It's not corporate. It's not replacing one hierarchical structure with another, right? It's acknowledging that people have the solutions and that if community-driven solutions and how we implement those solutions are driven by community, essentially, then change can happen. But if we continue to just have a top-down approach and push things on people and not listen to what communities need, then we're not really going to be able to have any level of progress. And so what I mean by that from a policy level is we can talk about free healthcare in the urban core, but free healthcare in, a, in the urban core in a city like Providence, it's going to look very different from free healthcare in Richmond. We need to start listening to communities and take that ideology of progress, that understanding that healthcare is a human right, that housing is a human right, that we have a constitutional obligation to provide an education that is equitable and results in equal opportunity. And then think about how that should translate into the systems that we're designing and how those systems can be implemented and how they should be implemented differently across the rural and urban core communities. And when we talk about progressivism, I think that is becoming a large spectrum too. And when we talk about racial justice, I think oftentimes we are hearing big ideas that often disconnect from this need for racial justice. Communities were racialized in this country to be monetized over over time. And we've seen the consequences of that. We see communities that continue to be redlined. We see this fight for minimum wage, which in of itself is a poverty trap. You can have two minimum wage jobs and your healthcare bills are pushing you back into poverty. It's monumental. Former Stockton Mayor Michael Tubbs led the charge in launching a privately funded guaranteed income program. He's now an advisor to the governor and reacting as California lawmakers approve the nation's first state-funded guaranteed income plan. Let me tell you, being the first would be scary. And being the first comes with a lot of bruises. But the, the nail that sticks out first is the one that gets hammered. So for the state to really take that risk and be the first really says a lot about the values of our leadership. So rather in my mind than talking about just livable wage, while I do believe in that, we need to say livable wage and specifically the mechanism is a supplemental wage program, that the state has an active hand in supporting the local economies and in getting money into people's checks so that they can have one job instead of two, they can have more time with their families, and at the end of the day, so that they can have not only equal opportunity, but an opportunity to further strengthen the very local economies that large corporations and crony politics have destroyed over the past several decades. I want to talk about two issues that are in the zeitgeist of our daily news. One is abortion rights, obviously at risk nationally more than ever in my lifetime. Lewis, what will you do to protect abortion rights as governor? Roe v. Wade, we've codified it here in the state of Rhode Island into law, and that was something that I supported even back in 2018. The current governor, I don't believe he did support it. I think it takes more than that, though. I like to see comprehensive reproductive health 
I think it's about activating youth. And so not only with, when I say comprehensive reproductive health, it's not just about reproductive health. It's about talking about what is, what are the laws and policies that might threaten rights? How can we empower students as they're coming out of high school to be politically active? Because if we're not building the next generation of soldiers, then the fact is this is always going to be threatened, right? It's cyclical. We can fight for codifying this into state law and then an entire generation comes next and now it's threatened as to whether it's going to be changed. I think at this point, we have to acknowledge that this struggle will never end in this country. So we're either building the next generation of political leaders that are going to have the instruments to fight back, or we're pushing our next generations into a fight that they're not going to be prepared for. So that's just very important to me. Where I stand is I believe in a woman's right to make decisions uh, over their body, their autonomy, over their health. I also believe that we should be really funding programs. Again, comprehensive reproductive health as one of the education programs that we should fund. I also think that we need to, at the end of the day, think really about how our state is interacting with other states. So Texas, for instance, CBS is here in Rhode Island. We know that CBS and political action PAC or committee, have, they have supported Republican politicians in the state of Texas. And so we really have to start fighting on every front. We understand that money drives politics in this country, and yet we have this economic powerhouse, this corporation here, and everybody is afraid to even acknowledge that that's taking place, let alone to talk about how that company that is using money to fund politicians had $30 million in subsidies over the last five years here in the state. Also, we're just in such a hard time right now when disinformation is just rampant. So how do you govern in a time when truth is just less accessible to people? I think you have to you have to communicate more, right? Not less. I think it's interesting. I find that the response to misinformation, this pandemic has been to communicate less. Controlled forums, press conferences once a week. People should have been out there in the communities. We should have had town halls talking about vaccine safety. We should have brought all of the DOH, Brown University physicians that are contracted out into the communities where we saw hesitancy. More communication, not less. There's such a concern in this political landscape around political liability. There's this treatment of politics as though it should be a vocation. And as a result, people are just interested in self-preservation. Now, I'm not thinking about the next eight years. Well, we have four years. We have four years and $1.1 billion from the federal government that's going to affect, going to impact the next 50 years here in the state of Rhode Island. I don't care about the next eight years. I care about the fight in the next four. And it's going to take a fight, a type of strategy in that fight where I'm communicating more, where I'm actually working alongside communities and where the legislator and every other body in the state that is not interested in change is going to have to confront a million Rhode Islanders and with a governor that's on their side. And also the federal government seems unwilling to do anything to protect us from gun violence. So I would love to give you just the opportunity to discuss that. What do you think is the role of state government in that fight? Yeah, we have powerful gun control laws here in the state of Rhode Island. I think that we need to do more in terms of how we leverage technology around ghost weapons and just understanding that a lot of CNC milling machines, things can be used to manufacture guns in a school or in a person's home. So we need to become more sophisticated around that. One thing that's often not talked about too, or not enough, is that these guns that are ending up in the inner city in the hands of kids, where are they coming from? Now, why are they being injected in those communities? I would like to see a, a traceback program. I would like to see 
the attorney general, along with the federal government team, to make sure that when guns are ending up in the inner city, we're, follow- we're tracking them back to the trade show. And we're bringing suits against the states that do not have strong gun laws, states that are allowing for trade shows and allowing for legal purchases of weapons that are ending up somehow in our inner cities. I'd like to see that, too. And let me be clear. There are no gun manufacturers in New York City. We don't make guns here. How are we removing thousands of guns off the street? and they still find their way into New York City in the hands of people who are killers. Constantly robbing highways of death, destroying our communities. We need Washington to join us and act now to stop the flow of guns. That would be incredible. It's a really good idea. And it's shocking that we're just continuing to watch children die and not doing anything to stop it. Tell us about the documentary that was recently released. Yeah, thank you. It's entitled Catalyst. And we have, for close to a year now, we've been interviewing activists and organizers uh, here in the state of Rhode Island, over 30, some professionals as well. Some are, I would say, activism in their own way, trying to change the world, but having experienced that economic hardship as children. So for instance, Demetrius Andre, the boxers in it, Flawless, hip-hop artist that uh, was on Netflix. Also, Bella Noka, one of the elders from the Narragansett tribe, Raymond Two Hawks Watson from the Narragansett tribe, uh, Silas Pinto, uh, one of the leaders in the Cape Verdean community, We are bringing together and we have brought together all of the community leaders that represent marginalized communities throughout the state. Our Cape Verdean community, our uh, indigenous communities, Black community, Latino community, and uh, Southeast Asian communities. And why did we bring them together? Because their stories are never told. You know, they tell their stories, but interestingly enough, it just amazes me that we can have so many beautiful cultures here in the state that actually create this amazing state of Rhode Island that we know today. And yet their stories aren't lifted up. And so I thought, why don't we just come together? Why don't we just start recording what their stories are? And so we started with the Narragansett tribe and we learned about the history of the Narragansett people here in Rhode Island, how Roger Williams stole their land, how Brown University contributed to the enslavement of indigenous people continues to keep indigenous land, how the state of Rhode Island actually had the 1978 settlement compact, which actually prohibits the Narragansett tribe from really having complete sovereignty over their land and prohibits them from building a casino, which frankly is a path to economic justice for that community. There are 2,000 tribal youth in the state and the state gives them $4,000 a year for youth programs. So that is the beginning story. How do we understand, how do marginalized communities understand the struggle, the insult that oppressive systems have had on their lives if they don't understand what has been done to our indigenous people. So our story begins there in the most concentrated abuse that we have in the state of Rhode Island in terms of this history. And then it stretches on to the struggles today where our activists and community organizers are talking about education, police brutality, housing crisis, and then ultimately whether or not we're gonna come together here in the state of Rhode Island to not only activate as adults, but to activate our youth because we need to create sustainable systems for the next seven generations as the indigenous belief system goes. If we're not building systems today to last seven generations, then what are we fighting for? And so Catalyst is exactly that, 
a group of catalysts that are coming together on this arc of progress at this intersection, knowing that we need to do something. I love it. How can my listeners support your campaign? Yeah, the website, there's uh, luisdanielmunoz.com or governor2022.com. That will redirect to the website. They can donate there through a link. There's an Act Blue link as well. So we have two donation mechanisms, the form on the website, uh, which is through Nation Builder, and then the Act Blue link. Also, in any way that you can spread the word. Right now, I, I want everyone listening to know that this fight isn't only a fight to improve Rhode Island, right? Every state right now, what we can demonstrate in terms of implementation of these progressive plans of free healthcare, addressing environmental justice, all of these things can serve as a model for other states. You can support the campaign with a donation and know that what we do here will also impact you. So my hope is that everyone listening will know that this is your fight as well and that I need your help. Hmm. And finally, what gives you hope? It's interesting. It's hard to put into words. But when I look at my daughter, Juliette Daniela Munoz, and she's a fireball, she's a, she has this energy about her. And I was really shy when I was a kid. It took me a lot to break out of that show. And she is just, she's just jumping off things. She's just saying no. She's just standing her ground. And this gen, the, the, the young generations now, the younger generations, a, a lot of people are saying, oh, you know, they're not focused. They, they grow up with these technologies. And actually, I just see that what the younger generations have done is they've been able to break out this game, but they're looking at the world in different ways. The rules that we grew up having to, to follow, the etiquette that we thought we needed to exist under, they don't have that. And that's actually not a bad thing. That gives me hope because I think that generation is going to be more equipped with the mindset it's going to take to dismantle these systems of oppression, to activate and to have the courage to push forward. So that gives me hope. It gives me hope that whatever we can catalyze today it's really only the beginning. I'm really excited to see this younger generation of young girls turn into women and take on the world because they're growing up without people telling them things like, be a lady or whatever it is. We're raising our daughters to be the fearless beings that they are innately are. And so I'm very excited to see what, what happens. Well, Lois Daniel Munoz, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I think we need organizers on the inside. That was my theory of change, is that if we had organizers on the inside, at the tables where policy decisions were being made, but also organizing on the inside and using the platform to help move organizing on the outside as well. It's a big platform and particularly as a member of Congress, it's an opportunity to really push bold ideas, to um, enhance and support outside movement organizing and to coordinate strategy inside outside strategies so that we can get big progressive policies. That was the theory of change and tied to that was the idea that if we had more people in office who actually represented the interests of the vast majority of people, um, that we would actually get more engagement in our democracy. We spend so much time focused on federal elections, who's running for the Senate, the House, the presidency. But as we are seeing now with horrible gerrymandered districts, state laws 
which repress the freedom to vote, the freedom to receive reproductive health care, the freedom to send our kids to schools protected from COVID and guns, state and local races may be so much more important. That's got to be our challenge this year, in 2022, when lots feels hopeless. Take back control of our states from the right-wing zealots who are doing so much harm. If we have state legislatures, we're protected from the worst impulses of the Greg Abbotts, the Ron DeSantis's, the Brian Kemp's out there doing so much harm. Now's the time to really Really pay attention. Primaries start in March. Wow. I'm ready. Are you? Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bulliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry, not sorry.